Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This podcast contains adult themes and language and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 170 bienvenidos bitches and booty be naffy and thank you for listening yeah fruit loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about contrary to popular belief not all serial killers are straight cisgender able-bodied white dudes no there are many (laughs) well-documented cases of serial killers of color and fruit loops is a podcast all about them we will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because you're not gonna believe this the news is racist allegedly And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth. And I just happen to be white. It's not her fault. We love her anyway. It's okay, friend. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, uh, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruitloopspod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron on Patreon. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors. Yeah. If you can't help monetarily, no problem. Just give us one of them old five-star reviews. Yeah, five do stars. it. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> are we talking about today, Beth? So today we're talking about Sheila Davalu, an Iranian-American woman convicted in 2004 of the attempted murder of her husband. She was also later convicted of first-degree murder in the stabbing death of a romantic rival, and it is Mm. wild. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) This one? This one made me go record scratch. I need to find that sound effect. Yeah. (laughs) 
She's not what you would typically think of when you think of a serial killer, but she committed and attempted to commit more than one murder. So here we are. Here we go. But before we get into it, how you doing? I'm good. And I'm excited to cover this case because it's right up my alley. I love these kinds of cases. Oh, my God. I can hear it in your voice. Oh, I'm excited. Let's do it. Let's get to the drama. Okay. Well, let's get into some listener Letters. Hello, angels. Thank <sighs> you. <laughs> what is in that bag, babe? Well, we got an email from Zeke who said, oh, yeah? I recently listened to your Cannibals of Color 2 episode. Sorry, I'm extremely far behind. And I have to say to Zeke, don't be sorry. We're just glad no, you're listening. Boo. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Anyway, he goes on to say, at the end, you mentioned that cannibalism itself isn't illegal and asked for help with clarification. I'm not sure if you've gotten a response or looked it up yourself. We haven't. (laughs) But cannibalism itself is actually legal in 49 states. The only state that has specific laws about consuming anything human is Idaho. And uh, he says it's not surprising that there's only one, considering it's not uncommon practice to eat placentas and the like, which would fall under that law. And that makes oh. sense. I didn't oh. I didn't even think of that. Didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. What laws are in place are all indirect, such as murder and desecration of a corpse. There's also mm-hmm. the National Organ Transplant Act of 1984 that prohibits the buying and selling of organs that are viable for transplantation. Oh man, my plans next week are ruined. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Bummer. <laughs> there are several smaller laws that I haven't mentioned that you'd have to work around, but theoretically, under the right circumstances, if the person is alive and willingly gives you a body part that isn't usable for a transplant, you could legally eat it in 49 states without any legal repercussions. (laughs) Oh my god! A hip hop air horns for that email. You know what, Zeke? Oh my gosh, I just... I want to give you a virtual hug. I love that. That's the kind of fact. When I say don't fact check me, this is not what I mean. Yeah, this, yeah. We, this, this is a good fact, fact check. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Zeke. Oh, but I my think I'm gosh. going to pass on eating body parts. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I mean, I, I really like the part that he said under the right circumstances under the with right consent, circumstances. Yes, with yes. consent, right? Yes. 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 So thank you so <laughs> much for that pass. clarification. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You do you, boo. All right. Well, now we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. All right, we are back. All right. Um, oh, hello. I'm supposed to say something. Yes. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? <laughs> today we're talking about Sheila Davalu, an Iranian-American woman who murdered a woman and attempted to murder her husband. Oh, right. Let's get. Wow. 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 Um, he had it coming. Um, just kidding. No, he did yeah, not. He did not. Um, so now we're going to get into some stats. <laughs> All right. Now, Miss Davalu had one murder victim. Rest in power to Anna Lisa Raimundo. Um, rest in power, Queen. The MO is an apparent love triangle that collapsed and the weapon she used was a knife. The first crime took place in November 2002 and then the next one took place in 2003. But that crime wasn't a murder. Anyway, she had a, she had a second victim that she attempted to murder. But we'll get into that in the story. Yeah. And uh, we are going to start with the setting and Davalu's early life because context matters. Yeah. Um, so, haters, bye. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Our subject today was born in Iran, and there is a lot, a lot of history here. And we'll Holy only. moly. Yeah. Tons of history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was researching the Iran part, the, uh, I was like, oh, but there's this. Oh, I there's know. This. It was really oh my hard. God. And to... then the section was so long. Yeah. It was really hard to pull out what we wanted to. Um, I mean, there was just so much interesting information. Um, yeah. So we did yeah. our best to summarize and touch on some of the highlights and the things that we found really interesting. Uh, so yeah. here we go. Okay. Iran is a mountainous, arid, and ethnically diverse country on the southwestern side of the the Asian continent. Mm -hmm. Much of Iran consists of a central desert plateau, which is ringed on all sides by mountain ranges. Most of the population lives on the edges of the desert. The capital is Tehran, located at the southern foot of the Elburz Mountains, along with Tehran, cities uh, such as Eshafan, Esfahan and Shiraz combine modern buildings with important landmarks from the past and serve as major centers of education, culture, and commerce. Iran's rich petroleum reserves account for about one-tenth of the world reserves and are the basis of its economy. Because of its strategic position and abundant natural resources, Iran has long played an important role in the region. Traditionally known as Persia, 
Iran has been influenced by waves of indigenous and foreign conquerors and immigrants for centuries. Wow. Human habitation in Iran dates back some 100,000 years ago, but recorded history began with the Elamites circa 3000 BCE. That is a long That's time really ago. That's really rad. Yeah. yeah. That wow. So, in other words, they're not new to this. No, they're they've been there for a really long yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, so various Muslim dynasties ruled beginning in the 7th century. In 1501, the Safavid dynasty was established, one of the longest running empires of Iranian history, lasting from 1501 to 1736. In the early 16th century, the Safavids introduced Twelver Shiism as the official religion, now the largest branch of Shia Islam. With the fall of the Safavids in 1736, rule passed into the hands of several short-lived dynasties, leading to the rise of the Qajar dynasty in 1796. Qajar rule was marked by the growing influence of European powers in Iran's internal affairs with economic and political difficulties and by the growing power of the Shia clergy in social and political issues. The country's difficulties led to the ascent in 1925 of the Pahlavi line. Mohammad Reza Pahlavi became the Shah in 1941. Shah is from the Persian royal title meaning king or emperor. He allied himself with the West in order to transform Iran into a modern power. But while he modernized the country, he forcefully suppressed dissent and political freedoms. Uh-oh. <laughs> The 1953 Iranian coup d'etat on August 19th, 1953. Coup d'etat, you mean coup, what Dr. Oz was trying to make in that video? Yes, coup d'etats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> It was the overthrow of the democratically elected Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh in favor of strengthening the monarchical rule of the Shah. It was orchestrated by the United States under the name Operation Ajax and the United Kingdom <gasps> under the name Operation Boot. Oh, I did not know that. Mohammad Mossadegh served as the 35th Prime Minister of Iran, but was Iran's first democratically elected Prime Minister. He was a beloved figure in Iran. During his tenure, his administration introduced a range of social and economic policies such as social security, land reforms, but the most significant was the nationalization of the Iranian oil industry. Iran had a lot of oil, which was discovered there in 1908. The British, of course, wanted it. Aha, that's mine. Yeah, I'm white. I want that. It's mine. <laughs> yes. Believing that Iran's natural resource was essential to Britain's future, a deal was struck between Iran and England that gave the British 80% to 90% of the profits and Iran got the rest. Now, wait a minute here. <laughs> that, that doesn't make any fucking sense. No. Now, if you're thinking that's a bad deal, well, you are right. But at the time, Iran needed the money. The company that controlled all that oil was called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. And now it's called British Petroleum. Fuck you, BP. <laughs> <laughs> Great Britain controlled Iran's oil for decades, and Mossadegh sought to change the terms of the deal. But after months of unfruitful talks, he broke off negotiations and denied the British any further involvement in Iran's oil industry. All right. No, Britain didn't like that. Oh, what? no. Oh, you mad? <laughs> <laughs> you want to <a> auger? <laughs> 
<laughs> so they wanted to get rid of Mossadegh to put in a more favorable government. To the British and the U.S., Mossadegh seemed unruly and unreasonable, which are terms that white people use to describe proud people that they don't like. Yeah. So if you ask me, that's racist. Yeah. But to Iranians, he was a figure who believed in democracy and was a balance to monarch. Uh, Monarchical power. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Monarchical. Monarchical. Oh, my God. Thanks, smart friend. Monarchical power. (laughs) It is a weird word. (laughs) Yeah. The British appealed to the United States for help. At first, they said no, but changed their position after the Eisenhower administration entered office in early 1953. With Eisenhower as president, the U.S. and the U.K. agreed to work together toward Mossadegh's removal. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, they're doing dirty. Yep. Now, the head of the CIA at the time was some dude named Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the grandson of President Theodore Roosevelt. Ever heard of him? <laughs> Just kidding. Roosevelt quickly seized control of the Iranian press by buying them off with bribes and circulating anti-Mossadegh propaganda. He recruited allies among the Islamic clergy, and he convinced the Shah that Mossadegh was a threat. In early August of 1953, Iranian CIA operatives pretending to be socialists and nationalists threatened Muslim leaders with, quote, savage punishment if they opposed Mossadegh, unquote, giving the impression that Mossadegh was cracking down on dissent and stirring anti-Mossadegh sentiments within the religious community. This sounds so familiar. Remember 2020? I know. (laughs) I was thinking the same thing when I was reading about this. this Yeah, these are bots before bots. yeah. So on August 19th, 1953, criminals and gang members in Tehran were hired by the CIA to stage both pro-Shah and anti-Shah protests. Wow. (laughs) Neither group knew that the other was being paid by the same entity, the C motherfucking IA, to attack each other. They took over the streets of the city and sowed confusion and chaos. Around 300 people were killed because of the conflict, all to make it look as if Mossadegh had lost control of the city and was the source of all violence. Also, stay tuned for next week's episode on a serial killer named the CIA, because they are responsible for a lot of this. Yeah, they are. (laughs) Wow. Within four days, Mossadegh was arrested, and he was eventually tried and convicted of treason. On December 21st, 1953, he was sentenced to three years in jail, then placed under house arrest for the remainder of his life. Other Mossadegh supporters were imprisoned and several received the death penalty. Wow. So following the coup, the Shah relied heavily on United States support to hold on to his power. But his attempts at Western reforms, American policies and repression sowed the seeds of revolution. The Shah was perceived by many in Iran as beholden to, if not straight up a puppet of, non-Muslim Western powers whose culture was affecting that of Iran's. He alienated Mm. religious leaders with his program of modernization and Westernization, and his reign was also perceived by many Iranians as oppressive, brutal, and corrupt. The British and Mm. Americans didn't care about the brutality because they still had easy access to the oil on terms that were still shitty for Iran. Gotta make that money. It's all about the paper. Cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money. That's America, baby. Uh, And during the 1960s, Ruhollah Khomeini 
better known as Ayatollah Khomeini, had called for the abolition of the Western-backed monarchy. He was sent into exile in Iraq, where he continued his opposition to the Shah. In 1963, the Shah introduced a series of economic, social, and political reforms with the intention of transforming Iran into a global power and modernizing the nation. But the petropolitics of the 1970s, which caused world historical upheavals, also brought an end to the U.S.-Iran allyship. Mm. The 1970s energy crisis occurred when the Western world, particularly the United States, Canada, Western Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, faced substantial petroleum shortages as well as elevated prices. Oh, no. Uh, The first crisis occurred in 1973 when the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, I never knew that's what that stood for, (laughs) made the decision to stop exporting oil to the United States. Two actions by the U.S. administration caused OPEC to launch the oil embargo when Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard and when the U.S. ordered military aid to Israel during the Yom Kippur War, a conflict between Israel and a coalition of Arab states led by Egypt and Syria. When the U.S. was taken off of the gold standard, countries could no longer redeem U.S. dollars in their foreign exchange reserves for gold. And it also sent the value of the dollar down. This hurt OPEC countries whose oil contracts were priced in U.S. dollars. Wow, what a way to fuck people (laughs) over. (laughs) Then on October 19th, 1973, during the Yom Kippur War, Nixon requested $2.2 billion from Congress in emergency military aid for Israel. The Arab members of OPEC responded by halting oil exports to the United States and other Israeli allies. Mm. OPEC continued the embargo until March 1974. By then, inflation had soared by 12% in the U.S. and up to 33% in parts of Europe. So we think it's bad right now. I think we're at like 8%. Um, Yeah. It was 12%. It was was, way worse. Wow. Um, Oh my gosh. What a mess. And... It makes a lot of sense looking back kind of where we are now. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to all of this, Nixon had actually encouraged the Shah of Iran to raise oil prices so he could afford to buy U.S. weapons. And for eight years, 1969 to 1977, the Shah negotiated a series of secret oil for arms deals demanding huge OPEC hike prices. Wow, that sounds neat. (laughs) Just kidding. Then the Saudis defied OPEC with a lower oil price and flooded the market. Because of this, the U.S. sought an allyship with Saudi Arabia against Iran, and Iran's economy plummeted. The gap between rich and poor in Tehran widened. Ayatollah Khomeini, still in exile, continued his opposition to the Shah. His opposition and influence, as well as the opposition to the Shah by other groups, plus Iran's economic difficulties, led to the 1979 Iranian Revolution, also known as the Islamic Revolution. The revolution was not originally aimed at producing an Islamic theocracy. The Islamists loyal to Khomeini were part of a wider coalition, which included secular liberals, nationalists, communists, and Islamist Marxists. Shared antipathy towards the Shah was the glue that held these different ideologies together. Mm. Now, what gave the Islamists the upper hand over the secular opposition was their access to a vast network of mosques and religious institutions across the country. Many people later regretted their roles in the revolution, but at the time, they couldn't see past the short-term goal of removing the Shah. 
protests began in January of 1978, which were dismissed by, well, everyone, (laughs) as just a (laughs) consequence of the Shah's program of liberalization, a cycle of protests, Mm -hmm. repression, violence, and mourning continued throughout the year. By August, there were riots in Isfahan, which quickly spread to Shiraz, Kazvin, Tabriz, Abadan, and Awaz. Then, 477 Iranians died in a deliberately set fire at Cinema Rex in Abadan, which people blamed on Savak, the Iranian secret police. By December, millions of Iranians were protesting all over the country, demanding the removal of the Shah and the return of Ayatollah Khomeini. In January of 1979, the Shah and his family left Iran for Egypt, ostensibly for vacation. Interesting, quote unquote. No. No. So days after the Shah's departure, hundreds of people, including many foreigners, were desperate to leave Iran. People packed into Tehran's Mehrabad airport with the hopes of catching a flight out of the country. Was Sheila's family among these people? We don't know, but it is certainly possible. Yeah. In February, Khomeini returned to Iran and was greeted by millions of people in the streets of Tehran. In March of 1979, a referendum to replace the monarchy with an Islamic Republic passed, and Khomeini was named the Grand Ayatollah, or Supreme Leader. Now, the new Islamic government passed a hijab law, which ordered women to wear a headscarf to leave the house. During the Shah's reign, veiling had been banned. Now it was mandatory. In both situations, women were not given a choice in the matter. That's what it's all about. I mean... Yeah, in both situations, they're being told what to do. They don't have a choice. Like some women might right. want to wear a veil. Other Absolutely. women don't. Yeah. Like give them a fucking choice. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> you dudes with your dinglings yeah. get whatever choice you yeah, want. Get the fuck now, out in of any here. case. <laughs> In any case, more than 100,000 women gathered in the streets of Tehran to protest. Women from every profession took part in the enormous demonstration. I love this, which ended with them being, oh, no, I don't love this, which ended with them being attacked and stabbed in the streets of Tehran. Terrible. Yeah. Oh, man. But I I admire um, that so many women weren't weren't having it. Yeah. Yeah. In the fractious infighting that followed the departure of the Shah, it is estimated that at least 12,000 people were executed. Oh, my God. People who hadn't fled the country, who were part of the Shah's regime, or who opposed the revolution were executed or held hostage. Iran became unstable with violence and repression. Oh, man. I can't help but think, though, if America and British had minded their own own fucking business. Yeah. Um, this uh, would there be this instability? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Iran found itself almost immediately embroiled in a long-term war with neighboring Iraq that left it economically and socially drained. And the Islamic Republic alleged support for international terrorism has left the country ostracized from the global community. Decades later, Iranians still live under the 1979 constitution adopted as part of the Islamic Revolution. Professor Shadi Maktari says that essentially an authoritarian regime was replaced with a religious authoritarian regime and the class divides of the Shah's era were replaced with new class divides. She says, quote, sons of the revolution's leaders and the business class that decides to work within the rules of the regime, they are the upper class in Iranian society. They flaunt their wealth, driving luxury sports cars around Tehran, posting Instagram pictures of their ski trips and beach trips around the world, 
all while the poor and the middle class are struggling to survive or maintain the appearance of dignified life, unquote. Mokhtari says that Iran is in social decay, with the effects of the revolution forcing people to live double lives. It has trapped them in a paradox of living one life in the confines of their homes, while going through the motions of outward religiosity as a means of staying out of trouble with the government. This is a culture corner, okay. because I saw the question pop up on Google, okay. are Iranians white? And... I don't think so. No. But Iran is a multi-ethnic country that includes Persians, Kurds, Azerbaijani, Arabs, and others. The Iranians in the United States were the only options are black or white or other. Ethnicities play a big role in, in identity and who people really are as human beings can become erased yeah. when coming to a place where there's this binary yeah. on everything. You're not part of the option. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's just it's just something I wanted to point out. Yeah. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Let's get into Sheila Davalu's early okay, life, shall here we? Okay, we go. Okay. So Sheila Davalu was born on May 11th, 1969 in Iran. Her family immigrated to the United States in the late 70s to escape the chaos and violence of the Iranian Revolution. So she was born in 69, um, late 70s. She was still under 10 years old, so she was still right. a little kid. She and her parents, yeah. both medical and health professionals, settled in the New York suburb of Yorktown Heights. 
After high school, Sheila, who was a gifted student, enrolled at the University of Stony Brook in New York, where she earned a degree in biochemistry. Wow. Okay. Uh, during this time, she married a man named Farid Musavi. Per Sheila, this was an arranged marriage. But her parents later said that that's not true, that Sheila wanted to marry mm-hmm. Farid, an Iranian man who was seven years older than her, and that they had actually been opposed to it. However, hmm. once they were married, her parents were adamant that she stay in the marriage. After graduating from Stony Brook with a degree in biochemistry, Sheila attended graduate school at New York Medical College in Valhalla, New York. There she met a fellow student named Paul Christos, and they began an affair. Mm. At first, Sheila lied to Paul about her heritage, claiming that she was Italian and French before finally admitting that she was Iranian. And I, f- I find this wow. interesting. Yes, That me she too. didn't want to admit that she was uh, Iranian. Um, there was a lot yeah. of uh, anti-Iran sentiment in the United States right. beginning in the 70s mm-hmm. and uh, right. going, um, I right. mean, to this, to to this, this day. day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it makes total sense. I mean, as a way, maybe a way to protect yourself or, you know. Yeah, um, yeah it makes sense. I, but but I, it, I totally get it. But it's it's interesting, I think, as part of her uh, personality that she didn't want to admit that she was from Iran. Yes. Interesting. Okay. So she also did not tell Paul that she was married. And he Uh-oh. thought that she lived with her parents. That is until one day when he received a phone call from Farid, who told him Uh-oh. that he was Sheila's husband and that he knew about their affair. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Paul was shocked. Yeah. So am I. <laughs> when he confronted Sheila about her lies, she told him that she was unhappy in the marriage and wanted out, but that her parents were opposed to divorce. And although Paul was upset that Sheila had lied to him, he was in love with her. So he decided to stick with her. Farid and Sheila eventually did divorce. Farid later recounted a story about when he was still married to Sheila. He'd woken up one morning to the smell of natural gas. He jumped out of bed and ran to the kitchen to find that all of the burners on the gas stove had been turned on. And Sheila was just walking out the door. She later (gasps) admitted to doing it, but claimed that she wasn't trying to kill Farid. I'm not trying to kill you, boo. Whoa. She was just depressed okay. and had developed a feeling huh. of being trapped, but she didn't actually know what she was doing. Wow. You know, um, wow, that's telling. Yeah. Um, especially when we get into our takeaways. Yeah. Now, Paul later said that Sheila could be emotionally volatile, sometimes overly dramatic or sensitive, bursting into hysterical crying or reacting with extreme anger to things that he didn't understand. And it eventually became clear to him that she had a high level of secrecy in her life about her heritage and her family, among other things. Paul and Sheila got married in 2000 and moved to Pleasantville, New York the following year. Pleasantville. I bet it's very, very white. One of my favorite movies, by the way. (laughs) Is Pleasantville. Yeah, Yeah, I like Pleasantville, too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Located about 30 miles north of Manhattan in suburban Westchester County, it was a convenient commuting distance from both their jobs. Now, Paul was still going to school, studying for his doctorate in epidemiology. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And he also taught at Cornell. Okay. In New York City. Wow, these are fancy people. So he was very busy. Now, Sheila was working 
working as a research scientist at Purdue Pharma. Wow. Located in Stamford, Connecticut. Both worked long hours and spent most of their time apart. According to Sheila, they lived more like roommates than spouses. So the relationship cooled off and Sheila became bored with it. However, her family was extremely opposed to divorce and she knew they would be upset with her if she had yet another failed marriage. Well, she has another thing coming for them. They are in for a surprise. Now, we are going to get into the timeline. So in the summer of 2001, Davalu met co-worker Nelson Sessler at a happy hour get-together after work. Nelson has been described as handsome, successful, charming, and a bit of a ladies' man. The ladies' man. Would you like some cavassier? Now, they soon began an affair. Davalu told Nelson that she was divorced, so supposedly single. But Nelson had hmm. a girlfriend named Annalisa Raimundo. Annalisa, a Filipino-American woman, was born in Brooklyn, New York, the daughter of doctors Renato and Susan Ramos Raimundo. A beautiful hmm. and brilliant young woman, she graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University. Wow. Wow. Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> then pursued her master's degree at Columbia University in New York. Wow. While in college, she volunteered at a soup kitchen and a women's center. She has been described as caring and delightful with a vibrant presence. I just love the brown excellence yes. in this episode. Yes. I mean, we're going to get into the murder part, but, but yeah. yes, yeah. love to see it. Now, Nelson and Annalisa had also met at a happy hour, but the year prior, and the two had become a couple. During the time that Nelson and Davalu carried on their affair, Davalu knew about Annalisa, but Annalisa did not know about Davalu. Mm. Mm, not good. <laughs> No. Davalu and Nelson sometimes met up at Davalu's condominium in Pleasantville, New York. This required some subterfuge on Davalu's part since she had told Nelson that she was divorced. Davalu got rid of Paul on these weekends by telling him that her brother, who was schizophrenic, was coming to visit. Wow. Now she told Paul that her brother didn't know that she was married. And if she told him, he might react badly. Paul knew from Davalo's parents that Davalu did, in fact, have a mentally ill brother. So he believed Davalu's story and would remove any trace of his existence from their home, packing up clothes, toiletries, and photographs. Before going off to spend the night or the weekend at a motel, his parents or one of his friends' houses. That's just wild. <laughs> That is a lot. That <laughs> yeah. is so much effort. Yes, it really I mean, is. <laughs> Good wow. <grief>. Yeah. <laughs> so when Nelson would arrive to sleep over, he believed that Davalu lived alone. But according to Nelson, he and Davalu did not even see each other all that often because Davalu was busy with other obligations and interests, including volleyball and taking care of her mentally ill brother. And by the summer of 2002, Nelson had apparently lost interest in Davalu. He committed himself to Annalisa and often stayed at her apartment in Stamford. According to Nelson, Davalu seemed okay with their relationship just being a fling that was now over. Privately, however, Davalu had become obsessed over Nelson. Annalisa Raimundo left Purdue Pharma in 2002 and began a new job at another pharmaceutical company, Pharmacia, in New Jersey. 
Despite working in New Jersey, Raimundo continued to live at her apartment in Stamford. And I, I think I have to say this area, um, it sounds like, you know, there's there's three different states. There's New Jersey, yeah. New York and Connecticut. So it sounds crazy that they're living over here and working over there and all this driving yeah. around. But it's really they're really not that far away from each other. And I think the commute oh. from Stamford to New Jersey, where she worked, was like 45 minutes. So it's oh, really not. Yeah. And it was the same for okay. uh, Pleasantville to Stamford. Uh, to co- oh. The commute was not really that long com- comparatively. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Give it up for our OG of true crime <laughs> and geography expert, especially with regard to the Northeast. Yes. Now, also in 2002, Davalu began talking to her husband, Paul, about a love triangle among three fictional co-workers at Purdue Pharma, Melissa, Jack, and Annalisa. She presented it as true from the perspective of her quote-unquote friend, Melissa, who supposedly was confiding in her. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, I know. There's there's a lot of work involved in all this. The lengths these people are going. (laughs) Or that uh, Sheila's going to. Everybody else is just living living their lives. Are you tired, girl? (laughs) Isn't this a lot of work? Davalu said that Melissa, who was in a relationship with Jack, was sad and depressed because Jack was also in a relationship with another woman. She Hmm. included intimate details about Melissa and Jack, including how upset Melissa was when Jack rebuffed her sexual advances. Now, keep Mm. in mind, she's talking to her husband about this. Right. Yeah. So she's telling, she's basically telling her husband how upset she is when her boyfriend rebuffs her sexual advances. Um, but yeah, you know, she's using other names, but that's what she's doing. That's, that's it's crazy. It's just so much work yeah. to, keep, to keep all of this together. together. Yeah. I, I'm tired. Just thinking I know. About it. Now she also, <laughs> she also told him a story about a time when Melissa, Oh, so she's telling multiple stories. Oh yeah. This is just, There's this story is after story. This is wow. Yeah. This is a lot. Yeah. How about, talking about when the bills are going to get paid or going out to dinner or something. Yeah. Come on. Uh, So she also told him a story about a time when Melissa had discovered Jack's travel plans and had flown to Jack's destination. She then conveniently ran into him at the airport as he was boarding a plane home and sat next to him on the return flight. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Whoa. Paul listened to these stories to, quote unquote, humor Davalu. Paul later said, quote, during a certain time period, she would talk about this love triangle every day. She would constantly ask me why Jack would do this, what he was thinking and what Melissa should do, unquote. Wow. Wow. Okay. so eventually Davalu told Paul that she wanted to go on a stakeout with Melissa in order to spy on Jack. Although Paul thought the proposed surveillance was, quote, a little odd, unquote, he didn't really think she would do it. But apparently, for some reason, Paul had a collection of spy gear, and he let Davalu use his night vision binoculars. She also asked Paul for an eavesdropping device that she knew he owned so she could help Melissa plant the device in Jack's office to listen to his conversations. 
Wow. Oh, she is doing the most. The most. Girl. Okay. <laughs> Davalu told Paul that she had purchased a lock pick set for Melissa because Melissa wanted to break into Annalise's apartment to look at photographs in order to, quote, get a sense of the relationship between Jack and Annalisa, unquote. Davalu practiced with the lock pick set on the front door of their condominium. <laughs> wow. Early one morning, Davalu called Paul to inform him that she and Melissa were outside Annalisa's apartment and asked Paul if Melissa should confront Annalisa. Paul told Davalu that Annalisa had a right to know that her boyfriend was cheating on her, but eventually, oh boy. Paul became sick of the stories of the love triangle and, quote, kind of got angry, unquote. Yeah. That would be I, really fucking yeah, I annoying. I, Stop talking about uh-huh. these people. <laughs> Can we, like, just sit down on the couch and watch a movie and cuddle? Come on now. (laughs) Let me be Big Spoon. Let me be Little Spoon. Um... So Davalu also related the story of the love triangle to their friends and Paul's parents. Oh, she's telling everybody. everybody. Yeah. She's telling on her stuff. She can't stop Ooh, talking about to- it. I think she's she's so obsessed. She just can't stop thinking about it or this, talking yeah, about it. This, yeah. Yeah, this is clearly an obsession. Now, Sheila has a full-time yeah. job at Purdue Pharma in biochemistry shit like she's busy whoa so where does she find the time i don't know (laughs) davalu also related the story of the love triangle to her friends and paul's parents according to friends emilio and tammy may davalu told tammy about melissa almost every time they talked and she would also ask her questions like whether or not she thought that jack would ever break up with annalisa and date melissa exclusively Davalu told Tammy that Melissa had access to Jack's voicemail and would listen to it on a daily basis to see if he was still seeing Annalisa or any other woman. She also told Tammy that Jack, quote, tried to set Melissa up with one of his friends, unquote, but that it did not go well because, quote, Melissa just wanted to be with Jack, unquote. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Several times, Davalu asked Tammy if Melissa should confront Annalisa to let her know that she was also seeing Jack. Tammy advised against the confrontation, but since that Davalu wanted her to say that Melissa should confront Annalisa. Yeah, she just wanted confirmation. <laughs> yeah. Just tell me that it's okay <laughs> yeah, to do this and really I'm gonna, terrible Because I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On November 8th, 2002, a few minutes after 12 p.m., the Stanford Police Department received a 911 call in which a female caller reported that a man was assaulting someone at 123 Harborview, apartment 105. The caller claimed to be a neighbor. She said, quote, I think a guy is attacking my neighbor. I don't know her name, but she's my neighbor and she lives in 105. I I saw a guy go into her apartment, unquote. The caller didn't identify herself and hung up abruptly. Did you hear the call? Yeah, I did. It's it's yeah. so weird. So weird. Yeah, it's just odd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And her voice is really strange sounding. Like, I think she's trying to disguise her voice, but she also oh. sounds like, I don't know, like she's trying to sound like a little girl or something. Like a kid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like a teenager. Like, That's what I, I thought, too. I, I think a guy is attacking my neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. Good Sheila impression, Beth. <laughs> 
So anyway, the dispatcher knew that Harborview was a commercial area without apartments and knew the given address had to be incorrect. So after the caller hung up, the dispatcher called back the number and discovered that the call had come from a payphone at the Duchess restaurant in Stamford. The dispatcher telephoned the Duchess restaurant and spoke to a manager who had not noticed anyone at the payphone. The dispatcher then sent officers to 123 Harbor Drive, apartment 105, which she knew was a residential facility near the Duchess restaurant. An officer knocked on the door of apartment 105 and received no answer. He then pushed the door open and saw the body of Annalisa Raimundo, 32, on the floor of the front foyer. She had been bludgeoned over the head several times and stabbed nine times in her face, (gasps) neck, and chest in a violent struggle. One puncture wound reached all the way to the back of her lung. Oh, my Lanta. The apartment showed no signs of forced entry or a robbery. There was a lot of blood, which crime scene analysts took samples of. A drop of blood was lifted from the bathroom sink, which detectives believed the killer used to wash up after the attack. So the blood could belong to the killer. According to former Stanford police detective Gregory Holt, quote, in an edged weapon assault or homicide, it's very common for the hand to slip off the handle or over the hilt and go down on the blade and the perpetrator cuts themselves, unquote. When Nelson Sessler returned after work to Annalisa's apartment, police officers questioned him. He responded calmly when informed of Annalisa's death, which raised the suspicions of investigators. While waiting to be questioned, he fell asleep, which investigators also found suspicious. Yeah, I've heard cops say that if a suspect falls asleep, they're guilty. Really? Yeah, I've heard them say that because that's not how you do police I know. work. Well, they're police. <laughs> Come on. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, you know, I was listening to wrongful conviction today and a cop um, basically admitted he um, pinned a guy for rape because he didn't like his attitude. Oh, my God. And I'm just. I, that just, is not right. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I I guess that flies in, in some cop cases, world. So. Yeah. 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 Unbelievable. Police also learned that at 11.57 a.m., the victim's home telephone had been used to place a call to Nelson Sessler's office. Nelson had not answered the call and no voice message had been left. Nelson gave officers the names of two other women he dated who suffered from mental illness, but he left out his relationship with Davalu. Uh-oh. Whoops. Now, after several hours of questioning, police released him. The police were unaware at this point of any connection between Davalu and the crime. Nelson was eventually cleared when Stamford police reviewed security records from Purdue Pharma. The company's security cameras and extensive security system revealed that he was definitely at work when the murder took place. Following up on the 911 caller's tip, authorities searched for a male suspect but came up with nothing. They also sought out the 911 caller, who had claimed to be one of Annalise's neighbors. They canvassed all of the neighbors, but none of them admitted to making the call, and no neighbor in the area matched the voice recorded on the call. Mm. Now, sometime in November of 2002, Paul noticed that Davalu had come home from work with a nasty cut on her thumb. Davalu explained that she had cut her thumb opening a dog food can. She had two dogs at the time. On November 13th, 2002, as part of his work, Paul had a meeting with representatives from Pharmacia, where Annalisa had worked. The representatives mentioned that a colleague of theirs had recently been murdered. Although a name was not mentioned, Paul began to wonder if Melissa had done something to Annalisa. Wow. 
oh my gosh, this feels like a Dateline episode. <laughs> now, Paul mentioned to Davalu that an employee at Pharmacia had been killed and asked whether Melissa was involved and if Annalisa was okay. Davalu did not seem shocked or surprised and responded without elaboration that Annalisa was fine. She told Paul that Jack and Annalisa had broken up and that Melissa and Jack were together exclusively. Mm. Yay! <laughs> At some point in late 2002, Davalu asked Paul about fingerprints and DNA. And on December 8th, 2002, during a dinner, Davalu also asked Emilio and Tammy May about DNA and fingerprints and questioned whether, quote, they have everybody's DNA on file, unquote. And which seems really dumb. <laughs> For a bio, a bio mechanical biochemist biochemist come on now wow this is surprising yeah uh Wow. In early 2003, Tammy May noticed that although Davalu continued to talk about Jack and Melissa, she had not spoken about Annalisa in a while. Tammy May asked Davalu about Annalisa, and Davalu responded that Annalisa had moved to New Jersey because she got a job there. And Jack and Melissa were now a happy couple. The delusions. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's the delusions oh, for me. Boy. After Annalisa's death, Davalu used the occasion to renew her relationship with Nelson. She sent him mm. a care package consoled him and was one of the few people willing to talk to him about Annalisa at a time when most people, quote, sort of shunned him, unquote. In January 2003, Davalu invited Nelson to go on a group ski trip. Nelson again entered into a sexual relationship with Davalu, and Davalu started using the same visiting brother ruse to send Paul away when Nelson was coming over to spend the night. But Paul was getting tired of leaving whenever Davalu's brother visited, and he told Davalu that her brother, quote, had to be told that we're married, unquote. Uh-oh. Okay? Yeah. Putting his foot down. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. What the what, Beth? On March 22nd, 2003, Davalu told Paul about a game that she'd heard about and she wanted to try. The game involved one person being handcuffed and blindfolded while the other placed objects against the bound person's skin. The bound person oh. was supposed to guess what the object was. Okay. Hey. I like. Mama like. <laughs> now the following day, Davalu asked Paul if he wanted to play the guessing game and Paul agreed to try. Davalu was the first to be bound and blindfolded. She guessed various household items. Then it was Paul's turn. He lay on the floor, blindfolded and handcuffed to a chair. Paul guessed various common household items before Davalu went to the kitchen to retrieve one last item, one more thing to guess. Oh boy. Oh, what could it be? <laughs> Whipped cream? <laughs> she sat on Paul's midsection and touched the item to his face. Paul guessed the item was a candle. The item was actually a knife. <laughs> Davalu then thrust the knife into Paul's chest paused, and then thrust it into his chest again. Paul later said that it felt like a heavy weight had struck his chest. Wow. Yeah. That escalated very, very quickly. quickly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Davalu said, quote, oh, my God, I think I hurt you. You're bleeding, unquote. Still blindfolded and handcuffed, Paul asked Davalu what had happened. She explained that, quote, something fell on you. I think the candle hurt you, unquote. <laughs> oh, my God. Whoa. Oh I don't know. God. I don't know what happened. <laughs> Paul asked Davalu to remove the blindfold, and she did. He saw that his shirt was soaked in blood. 
Oh, he was wearing a shirt. <laughs> I expected them to be totally nude. No, I, so, actually, uh, they've talked about this, and it wasn't actually that sexual. Oh, I'm bummed. Yeah. Dang it. <laughs> well, that is disappointing. <laughs> so he pleaded for Davalu to uncuff him, but she said she lost the key. At Paul's request, Davalu helped him break the chair to which the handcuffs were attached. She later, quote unquote, found the key and removed the handcuffs. Paul asked Davalu to call 911. He heard Davalu seem to make a 911 call, but after 30 minutes passed and no ambulance arrived, Paul asked Davalu to call 911 again. She made excuses that they're on other calls, telling him to be patient. <laughs> be patient while you're dying. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's how 911 works. No. Uh, so when she seemed to finally relent and call 911 again, he asked to speak to the operator. Davalu told Paul that the operator wanted him to lie on the floor and did not want to talk to him. What? <laughs> Davalu, that's not what they say either. Uh, Davalu told Paul she was going to get a doctor from a nearby walk-in clinic, but she was back within five minutes because she said the clinic was closed and they couldn't help him. At some point during all of this, Davalu called Nelson Sessler to invite him over to her house for dinner? What? <laughs> Wait a minute. I I don't know what to say. Wow. I couldn't wait My to hear you read this part. Again. <laughs> I, wow. The audacity. I cannot with this one. I know. (laughs) You know me so well. I know. (laughs) Paul finally insisted that Davalu take him to a nearby hospital. Davalu agreed to drive her husband to the Westchester Medical Center emergency room. However... She drove slowly, and instead of driving him into the emergency entrance, she diverted to a remote parking lot at the rear of the hospital's behavioral center. She did not. Wow. So Dablu then got out of the car and opened the rear driver door where Paul was lying. Paul thought Davalu was going to help him out of the car until he saw an angry expression on her face and she lunged at him with the knife, stabbing him again and nicking his heart. Yikes. What? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. This is, wa- it's this wild. is wild. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this is a lot. Yeah. Woo. Paul somehow managed to get out of the car and attempted to wrestle the knife out of Davalu's hands. The melee moved to a grassy spot in the parking lot. Paul broke free, ran about 200 feet, and yelled to a medical resident and another person who were near the entrance to the behavioral health center. The resident called 911. Davalu asked the resident to let her take Paul to the emergency room. <laughs> oh, my God. Thankfully, the resident refused. <laughs> What did you think was going to happen? Sheila Davalu. Yeah. What did she go? What? Purdue Pharma girl. Yeah. The supposed to be the smartest cookie around. No. And this was her plan. This was her plan. Now, yep. Paul, <laughs> Paul survived. Oh, my God. Paul survived following open heart surgery. But police didn't tell Davalu that. Oh, no. Instead, they let her run her fucking mouth, which she did a lot of. Yeah. Uh, She denied having anything to do with Paul's stabbing. And she claimed that 
he came home with the mysterious wounds and that she had even tried to call 911 to get help. <laughs> sure you did. <laughs> uh-huh. But Davalu's story changed after she was told that Paul had survived. She began to spin different <gasps> stories about what happened, including self-defense, that Paul had fallen on the knife. <laughs> wow. <laughs> or he'd sat up during the game, plunging his own chest into the knife twice. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Can, I mean, just pick, just pick for that. Just picture I mean, that. that. Just is, picture that. None of those. None of those. Wow. Now try again, Sheila. Um, so Nelson, when Nelson arrived at Davalu's condominium for dinner. Oh, he still came oh, for yeah. dinner. Okay. He found officers searching the residence. So this was the second time Nelson arrived somewhere only to find a crime scene. What the, what the hell is wow. happening, Nelson? What? What is what is happening? So police informed him that there had been a domestic dispute and that Davalu's husband, Paul, was in the hospital. Nelson was shocked to learn that Davalu was actually married. That's the shock. <laughs> Nelson. Oh, we wow. need to talk, Nelson. <laughs> yeah, Nelson. We're talking for a second. Oh, my God. By checking phone records, investigators learned that Davalu had never called 911. Former Westchester County Police Detective Allison Carpentier, who was investigating the case, saw that Davalu's last call was to Nelson Sussler. Mm. When she drove to Nelson Stamford's home to talk to him about it, a neighbor asked, are you here about the murder? The detective replied, no, he didn't die. I'm here about the assault. No, the neighbor said she died. <laughs> what? Learning that Nelson's girlfriend had recently been murdered, police spoke with detectives working the Raimundo murder and discovered that the two cases were connected. Detective Carpentier said, quote, when we heard the 911 tape, I said to them, you know, that's Sheila Davalu's voice, unquote. (laughs) Wow. Wow. They they did it. They did it. Stamford. Elise! Wow. Contacted Paul about the death of Annalisa, and he gave them several written statements and Davalu's phone records. Davalu was seen in a surveillance video leaving her workplace at Purdue Pharma in Stamford at just before 11 a.m. on the day of Annalisa's murder. While hmm. investigating the crime scene at Annalisa's murder, officers had discovered that bloodstain on the handle of the bathroom sink in her apartment. The bloodstain was later determined to contain all of the different genetic elements that were present in the DNA profiles of both Davalu and Annalisa. Got her! Got her! (laughs) True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events... On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. 
we navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. So now we're going to get into the trial. So in 2004, Davalu was found guilty of attempted murder and assault for the stabbing of her then-husband, Paul Christos. She was sentenced to the maximum of 25 years in prison without the possibility of parole. After slowly and methodically building the case against her, authorities in Connecticut officially charged Davalu with the murder of Annalisa Raimundo on November 21st, 2007. The trial did not actually take place in until 2012. Wow, that's interesting that it took so long, so long yeah. to build a case in Connecticut. Yeah, Isn't I Connecticut think, like uh, well, I think part of it was she's she was already in jail, you know. She had already oh, been Oh, so they could yeah, wait. Yeah. Yeah. She wasn't going they, anywhere. Right. They knew she Yeah. Was. Right. But still, justice delayed for Annalisa's family. Yeah, true that. Anyway, Davalu represented herself. It gets worse. (laughs) So for hundreds of hours and for months on end, the jury was exposed to Sheila's voice. Oh, no, (laughs) Santa Maria. The prosecution rested on two pieces of evidence. Davalu's voice on the 911 call on the afternoon of the murder and the blood sample taken from the bathroom sink, which came back as a match to Davalu. Shoring these up was evidence on the Purdue Pharma key card, which Sheila used to exit work during the middle of the day on the day of Annalise's murder. Paul Christos also testified against Davalu during the trial. Mm, good. Um, I was also going to say, since she represented herself, she got to question everybody. Oh, yeah. Including Nelson, who yes. was like, get the fuck yeah, away from me. I, I'm <laughs> pretty sure that's why she wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2012, at 42 years old, Davalu was found guilty of Annalisa Raimundo's murder, and she was sentenced to another 50 years in prison. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Hit it, Beth. Upon completing her 25-year sentence at New York's Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women, Davalu will be transferred to a Connecticut prison to begin her 50-year sentence. Davalu will be 60 when she begins serving the 50-year prison sentence for murdering Raimundo. Wow. She's never getting out. I don't know if she's going to make it. She's never getting out. (laughs) Paul divorced Sheila in September 2004. He still works at Cornell and lives in New York City. He's completed his PhD and is involved in teaching and research. Um, So now we're going to get into our takeaways and what we think made Sheila snap. What are your thoughts, Beth? Well, first of all, I have to say that these crimes were really dumb. <laughs> like yeah. really really dumb for real. <laughs> for real. Yeah. To the 10th degree. <laughs> These were all uh very intelligent people. Um but yes. with the exception of Annalisa I think emotionally not so much. I mean um Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean that's obviously Davalu was not very emotionally intelligent, but I think also Nelson and Paul because they yeah. they were just so I don't know. Easily fooled? <laughs> I don't know. Easily fooled? Um, um, manipulated? Love makes people do crazy yeah, things? Yeah. yeah. And I wonder, you know, I was looking at Sheila 
right? Uh-huh. And she's, um, you know, I think attractive. Oh, yeah. Right. She and is. I don't know what Nelson and Paul look like. They, but they I, were both attractive. They were. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I wasn't sure if it was like like a nerdy guy getting attention from a really attractive woman. I don't think so. I think it was also compelling. Um, personally, I think I then. actually think Paul is more attractive than Nelson. But that's just personal oh, opinion. Okay. Yeah. Okay, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what are you doing with this Nelson guy when you could have Paul? <laughs> when you could have Paul. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, you're 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 right. They were easily fooled, whatever the reason. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um anyway, I find it interesting how Davalu was able to manipulate both Paul and Nelson. And how easily she lied it reminds me of both jody arias and casey anthony um like Mm. them she lied like it was breathing to her and everybody believed her i think she thought that she could get away with anything she wanted to just by talking her way out of things um and her narcissism was really really strong Off the Richter. Yeah. Off the Richter. Yeah. But she'd also gotten away with a lot of this type of behavior in the past, which probably shored up her belief that she could. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Built her confidence up. And if I were a psychologist, which I'm not. (laughs) What? (laughs) I think I would suspect that she has borderline personality disorder. People with uh, Mm -hmm. BPD have extreme mood swings, which Paul described. Yes. Unstable relationships. In this case, she was hopping from person to person. There was other relationships in there we didn't get into um, for time constraints. Um, But they also have trouble controlling their emotions. Um, And obviously Mm -hmm. she had, you know, she murdered Annalisa. That's that's an anger problem. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And and I I, all the sources I uh, referred to talked about just how brutal the the murder was. Yeah. Scene was. Yeah. Like you had to have been really mad um, and angry and just rage. Full of rage. Right. And we don't really know what causes borderline personality disorder, but up to mm-hmm. 70% of people with BPD have experienced some type of, type of childhood abuse. Um, oh, that makes Some sense. studies have mm-hmm. shown it may be passed down in families. They suggest mm-hmm. a genetic link, but I am guessing mm-hmm. there's probably a generational trauma element as well. So, oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Fleeing um, the uh, turmoil that was existing in Iran when she came into this. World, right. Right. So and then also your immigrant parents when they moving to another country is hard, hard and traumatic. Yeah. Right. And then um, your parents just putting their nose down and working, working, working. Right. Trying to be good immigrants and live the American dream. And they might not have even had enough uh, time to devote to her transition. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, I, emotional growth. I believe that uh, neglect is part of it. Yeah. Because uh-huh. people with borderline personality disorder have a really hard time with uh, abandonment. Oh, yeah. Yes. So mm-hmm. I did want to say about the BP thing though right. it's treatable oh yes it is and yes. um yes. most people with bpd do not do things like this <laughs> right check yes so glad you said that <laughs> when you know better you do yeah. better right <laughs> so I've, I've shouted it out before but um psychology in seattle they oh, talk yeah. a lot about uh the 
Kirkonda is the, the psychologist and he works with people okay. with personality disorders a lot. Like that's kind of his specialty. And he's talked a oh, lot cool. about borderline personality disorder. And uh, mm. so if you want to uh, learn more about it or if you've been diagnosed with it, it uh, he's mm-hmm. he's really compassionate. Um, and oh, that's yeah, great. so that's great. Um, yeah, give psychology in Seattle a listen. Anyway, oh, thank you. <laughs> Shout outs early today. <laughs> anyway, Davalu still claims that she didn't kill Annalisa and that she didn't intend to hurt Paul. The attack on what? <laughs> yeah, that's what she says. She still claims. <laughs> That. Okay, girl. <laughs> and uh, the I think the attack on Paul was really weird. Like it was in yeah. slow motion. <laughs> yeah. So at first yeah. I thought um, it, she didn't like she was hesitating to kill him. Like she didn't really want to kill him. You know, she stabbed yeah. him and then she's like, now what do I do? Um, right. But I started to think that maybe she actually wanted to watch him die. Oh, <gasps> But Paul didn't do anything I to know. her. Uh, it's just so but, weird. It's really weird. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know that part of BPD is impulsivity. True. Right? Yeah. And so that might have um, affected her decision making at the time. Yeah. Um, so, but that is, what if she did yeah. want to die slow? It's just so I want weird. her to be interviewed. Yeah. Well, like, she, she was interviewed by the, our favorite guy, Piers Morgan. <laughs> No, really? Yeah. Um, I did not. Oh, no. He's not the guy to do it. I watched the interview and um, Uh it it wasn't really, um, it didn't answer any questions. He's not good at what he does. (laughs) Um, And he's he's just like human clickbait. I don't know why he still is like around, but he is not a. Um, as far as journalism goes, I think he's trying to be a journalist, but he's not good at it. And yeah. he, he does a lot of these murder shows and murder interviews. So it make I guess it makes sense that um, you saw an yeah, interview. But and he, I only watched it because it nowhere. was the only one I could find where she, she was interviewed. Um, I don't think she's okay. given any other interviews because I okay. I saw that and I was like, oh, fucking Piers Morgan again. But I wanted to see what she had to say. And she really didn't say much of anything. Yeah, he doesn't really ask that great a question. Yeah, and he's um, confrontational a lot of the times and they just get uh-huh. defensive and it doesn't really. Yeah, it's it's not helpful. Well, thanks yeah. for wasting Beth's yeah, time, for Piers. Wasting my time, Piers. How dare you? <laughs> I, got, uh, I got shit to do, Piers. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. This guy over here, he stinks. So, um, well, I agree. The, uh, back to Sheila being so smart. Smart. Biochemistry, <laughs> um, bitch. Purdue Pharma, bitch. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the crimes were real dumb. Super dumb. Almost like clown carish or like sketch comedy-ish. That, that last scene at the hospital where she's driving all slow. Yeah. Like it's comedic. Oh, it's, it's I, almost, I was thinking like it, would, it would make a good comedy movie, you know? It, yeah, yeah, like a really dark comedy. Yes. A really, really dark yeah. comedy. You know, one of my favorite movies when I was a kid was Serial Mom. Oh, about yeah. About the mom who was a yes. serial killer. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Very dark humor. Or that, that other um, one and that's I, based I, on a true crime. I can't remember the name of it, but um, I think Nicole Kidman is in it. Oh. It was based on the teacher okay. who had an affair. 
It's a movie, not a show. No, it's a movie. It's a comedy. It's a dark comedy. It's from like the 90s. I'll find it for you later. I'm okay. not going to rest until I find it. I I, I, I want to know so bad. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, it, it was almost come- like you could not. It feels like you can't write this. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it would make such a good comedy. It would dark make comedy. a really, really great dark comedy. Yeah. Um, that's going to be our next project yeah. is Beth and Wendy write a script. <laughs> uh, so, um, I also thought about her repeatedly not wanting to upset her Iranian parents. Right. And um, we talked about the generational trauma and being a kid of an immigrant and um, how that might have contributed to her mental state. And um, I also thought of Jodi Arias. Right. Um, I think she believes she was the smartest one in the room yep. and you could tell as much by those interrogation yeah. tapes. And I was disappointed that this was not about BDSM. Yeah. Um, Cause I was thinking I'm not here to kink shame, but I know there's say a safe and consensual way to practice BDSM, but this is not it. <laughs> Plunging <laughs> knives into people's chests and hearts. Yeah. Not a, not a um, good idea. Don't do it. <laughs> no. So, and then um, it seemed like a lot of time went by before they realized about the murder of Annalisa or, or were really, really working on it. Like, I feel like the connection could have been made much sooner. Uh, it would have and, been made much sooner if Nelson had told them about Davalu, but he but didn't. But they were checking things like surveillance tapes, right? Um, that just seems like something they would tr- get on sooner. Surveillance tapes of the apartment. And I, I, I only bring that up to say Annalisa was a woman of color. Oh, right. right. So maybe there was less um, less of a priority yeah. um, on her death. Yeah. So anyway... That's my take. Gotcha. Now it's time to talk about how not to get murdered. <laughs> <laughs> so first, step one, um, stay away from Sheila Dabla. <laughs> now, <laughs> if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So we are transitioning over here. Some big things happening over at Fruit Loops. We would like you to help us out and send us your how not to get murdered tips. Yeah. Also, just want to say, practice a little self-care. Be kind to yourselves so you don't feel like murdering someone. Yeah, great idea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's shout out time. Where we shout out any content <laughs> by people of color, marginalized, minoritized <laughs> folks, or any true crime goodies. So I just wanted to shout out Stolen Season 3, Surviving St. Michael's. I can't remember if I shouted this out before, but I, I was, think my so. love for it was rekindled. So it's uh, investigative journalist Connie Walker she found out about a story of her father and the abuse he encountered while in residential school mm. and the priest is still alive oh my god she interviews him holy um, shit it's it's yeah and and she also interviews several other indigenous people in her community who encountered these abusers and um just people who suffered at the hands of the government and the church wow. at these residential schools and all the legacy of you know um generational Fuckery. trauma yeah. passed down yeah i also wanted to say 
watch the trailer for the Little Mermaid, the new Black yeah. Little Mermaid, oh, over and, and over and over again, yeah. and watch all the reactions. I love the reactions. Kids of all colors. It's yes. beautiful, but particularly with Black kids, it yeah. will make you feel really good. And if you wonder why is representation so important, that's, that's why. why. Yeah, it's like Zoloft for your eyeballs. Yeah, it's it's really touching. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. Uh, what do you got? Well, I got a true crime goodie. Uh, Hell yeah. <laughs> speaking oh of crazy bitches. <laughs> huh? <laughs> Sins of Our Mother on Netflix dropped this week. It's the oh, Lori Vallow right. Daybell story. Um, white yes. people all around. Lots of snow. Lots of snow. But, uh, <laughs> I am fascinated by this story. Yeah. So. Well, you're fascinated. I mean, it, it, it's... It's kind of the story that keeps on giving. Yeah, there it was really something is. in the news just last yeah. week about this family. Yeah. So I will be watching it. <laughs> I love so the story just... about a crazy bitch. So don't ask me why. Hell I just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Or, I see or you, you know, uh, it could be a, a a crazy dude. I just love these stories. Or a crazy they. Yeah. Or a crazy they. A crazy anybody. Yeah. Amen. Just yes. love it. I don't crazy. know why. Crazy is my favorite <laughs> yeah. flavor. So, that, so that's um, Stolen Season 3, Surviving St. Michael's, as well as the trailer for The New Little Mermaid, as well as uh, The Sins of, or no, Sins of Our Mother on Netflix. And then now, we also used oh. an episode of Throughline for the history part of this story. And I think we've shouted oh, yeah. it out before, but if not, Throughline is a historical yeah. podcast which aims to contextualize current events by exploring the historical events that contributed to them. So um, give it a listen if you haven't yet. And the hosts are people of yep. color, including a young man from, I believe, Iran. Yeah. So um, there you it go. Uh, was very illuminating. Yes. So uh, that's also through line. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's all for today. Uh, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. Mm. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Yes, now this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com <laughs> 